G'day, and welcome to episode four of Thought Club. Do you know about genes? Are you curious about how genetic services like 23andMe work? Maybe you've heard the terms epigenetics, GMO, and CRISPR, but actually have no idea what they mean. Well, you're in luck, because my guest today is my good friend, neighbor, and all-round bony man, Ronan O'Neill. Ronan is a biotechnologist, science communicator, and budding medtech entrepreneur, who I'm lucky enough to have around to answer all of my science questions. My main inspiration for the topic of this particular conversation with Ronan was an article I read about biohacking. The article talks about biohackers, people who build genetics labs in their homes and try to change their own genetics. The article outlined one particular event that really stuck in my head. It described a biohacking event in which a biohacker gave a presentation on stage and then injected himself with some genetic material that would change his body in some way. The scene stuck with me mainly because it felt like something out of a science fiction movie. I was incredulous about the fact that within 20 years of the mapping of the human genome, that the technology had progressed so quickly that people were able to modify their own genes with a home lab. This made me realize that actually I have no idea what mapping a genome meant or what sort of genetic modifications cutting-edge science in 2018 was actually capable of. Instead of going out and researching these questions like a regular person, I decided to save up my questions for a situation where I could ask Ronan and record the answers. This episode of the podcast is that situation. The conversation is divided roughly into three parts. Firstly, the reading of genes as it relates to mapping genomes, what mapping a genome actually means, and how it's used by services like 23andMe. Secondly, we touch on epigenetics, what it means and how it happens. And finally, we talk about writing or modifying genes, in which Ronan schools me on the history of GMO, what CRISPR actually is, and what sort of genetic modifications modern science is actually capable of in 2018. I must warn you, the podcast gets very technical very quickly, but I encourage you to stick with it because I think it gets more and more interesting as we go. Okay, let's get into it. Please welcome Ronan O'Neill. G'day. G'day, mate. How's G'day. it going? So you mentioned that you've been on some podcasts before. Who did you do them with? So I worked with Australian Science Communicators, the WA branch. They run a workshop called Podcasting for Science as a part of um, National Science Week 2018. Mm-hmm. And for we could do a podcast on anything we wanted. And I thought what would be uh, really getting the clicks is something like uh, research into MDMA. Oh, right, yeah. Yeah, so I, um, through a contact I had at Perth Biodesign, she introduced me to a researcher who uh, was conducting uh, these prelim- preliminary studies into whether you could use MDMA in combination with uh, traditional... Um, Psychotherapy or something? Psychotherapy. Right, okay. Uh, And you were the interviewer. Yeah, so interviewer in the sense that I uh, booked a time with him and called him up and I had prepared a bunch of questions ahead of time and just ran through them and he gave a great interview. So they gave you a workshop. Did they also provide a studio and things like that? So we did have that opportunity while we were there, but... um, no, they gave us a lot of uh, interview techniques 
they gave us um, some information f about sound editing, um, but the whole workshop was only three hours, and they're trying to fit in like a whole career's worth. Of right. So did you end up doing the interview with this person that did the MDMA research? Yeah, so I did over Skype. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. I think that probably sound quality-wise, it's not the best. I've recorded one over Skype, but ultimately it's quite nice because it means you don't have to bring someone in. Yeah. Yeah. So have you released it? Are yeah. you planning to? I have, okay. yeah, yeah. And uh, wrote out a transcript as well for know, people who don't, uh, who can't listen to what's being said or prefer reading oh, things. Oh, nice. As well, well yeah. you didn't tell us, but I'm interested to listen. Yeah, have a look. Right. So today I have so many questions for you in general but today the things that i wanted to focus on were genetics mm -hmm. and primarily split those in, split that into two categories being the reading of genes and the writing of genes i've gone very mm -hmm. software engineery on it in the sense that with databases it's either read or write but reading and writing genes and diving in there so for me, the first question that comes to mind specifically with reading genes is what does it actually mean to map a genome? What does that mean? Hmm. So a genome is the collection of all the genes in an organism. Right. And one species to the next, you'll have a different genome, different collection of genes one person to the next it'll be very similar but you might have slight differences here and there throughout the genome um mapping all of that gives you an insight into maybe what that organism is capable of in a in a biochemistry sense and uh can give you information if you already know what genes correspond to different outcomes, different phenotypes, like physical um, traits and maybe illnesses down the track. If you have someone's genome and you can uh, compare it to a library of what you know already, you can gain information about um, that organism's possible future. And you have a mix of nature and nurture. Right. But you, give, you get a lot of the information about nature from the genome. So... Excuse my lack of historical knowledge. I remember that the human genome was mapped in, I think, the early 2000s. What was the first one that they were able to, quote-unquote, map? Was it something, I think it was wheat or something, was it? Or am I misremembering? The first genome before humans? Bef before humans. Or maybe the first genome that we've ever mapped as, as humans. Mm. What was the first one that we've ever mapped? I don't know that off the top of my head. It's definitely not wheat because wheat is complex. Where okay. we, we have like pairs of chromosomes. Right. 23 pairs. Right. Wheat has, um, oh, it's 22 pairs in sex chromosome. 23. It's 23. 23. From what I remember of high school biology. No, you're yeah. Right, yeah. Um, wheat is hexaploid, which means it has six of each chromosome. And it might be pulling out genes. It's it's much harder once you have instead of um, pairs of chromosomes, you start getting multiples. The, the which chromosomes are turned on at different times it just becomes a whole mess. People are, people so, are trying to map wheat now. 
Okay, so yeah. wheat is way more complex. Way I don't know why complex. wheat came to mind. Maybe you've mentioned it before. So mm. compared to wheat, the human genome is actually quite simple. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, but compared to yeast, compared to bacteria, it's much more complicated. I would expect that something like E. coli, which is uh, used in labs a lot and uh, as like a workhorse, it'd be pertinent to start there as a... Okay. as a, a place to start with the genome, but I don't know which so, organism it was first. So mapping genes, does that mean literally a transcription of all the genes in a particular organism? So what you're going to do is... Um, what, what you do nowadays is you'd put um, uh, the genetic material from an organism into like a like a big MySeq, a big... Um, MySeq. MySeq is like a, a brand from Illumina of like a, a, a high high throughput gene sequencer. Okay. And different um, methods of sequencing genes have different benefits, but um, you'll get a bunch of stretches of reads, around five hundred base pairs long, and like like hundreds, thousands, many, many, many reads. And then you're going to try and use a computer program to stitch those together. Basically put them head to tail. Head so to tail. for example, with ours, with our 23 chromosomes, mm. which are essentially, from what I understand, long strings of the genetic base pairs. Let's say we start with chromosome one. Mm. What we would try to do is feed in zero to 500 of the base pairs and then feed in 501 to 600. Am I understanding it correctly? Ideally, yes. But okay. what you're going to get is a bunch of reads from 0 to 500. Okay. And you're going to get a bunch of reads from 10 to 510 and every combination in between. But what you're not going to get is um, at the end of the first chromosome, whatever number that's at, say it's like 100,000. Right. You're not going to reach the end of that and keep going and start mapping chromosome 2. You just want to focus on chromosome 1 again and again and again and again? Just because it's not connected. Right. When you, You'll get reads from all the chromosomes in an organism at once. With that machine? Yeah. Oh, my word. But you, you'll notice that what you think is the end of a chromosome never continues on into something else and you can be fairly confident that's the end. You can also um, map, uh, have good knowledge of short sequences and the distance they are from each other. It's called pairwise sequencing. Okay. And if you have a bunch of those, that's a good way to map breeds. It's so it seems extremely time-consuming and very manual. I mean, how do you... Let's say you've got a 500-pair read. How would you even begin to go about knowing where in which chromosome that particular sequence goes? How do you even begin to know that? So you're looking at a uh, a lot of computer programs that okay. don't do that. Um, basically, the more reads you have over a certain area, the higher confidence you have. But how do you know which area you're reading over at all? If you're feeding in all of... I guess you're feeding in all of the genetic material from the nucleus of a cell, mm. potentially, mm. which for us would be you're feeding in all 23 chromosomes. Am I right? Is there a way to separate one chromosome from another at all? Sure. Okay, so you, it would be possible to feed in just 
chromosome one, just chromosome two, again and again and again. Mm. Uh, I guess probably what you'd want to do as well is feed in the genetic material of a single organism so you know that every time you feed in chromosome 1, it's going to be, I guess, nominally identical. Am I right there or am I assuming things incorrectly? No, what you're saying um, makes sense. At the same time, you can also... It's it's not... um, impossible to work out um, multiple organisms from one sample. So people can get uh, samples of seawater and you can map all the all the genes that are present in there and have an idea of what um, organisms are present in that water. Because say you've got a length, so you've got four base pairs, A, T, G, C, well, four, um, yeah, nucleotide base pairs. And so there's, if you have one base pair, there's four combinations. If you have two, it's four to the two, which is 16. And then you go on 64 combinations of base pairs. So if you have a length of nucleotides that's like 500, let's say, long, that's four to the 500 possibilities. Why is it four? Doesn't A always go with T, C with G? Mm, But if you're... Um, looking at one strand. Ah, so you wouldn't long strand. So you wouldn't be, be looking at the the base pairs together. You'd be looking at one side. Yeah. So there's a ah. a leading strand and a lagging strand, forward five five prime to three prime, and three prime to five prime strands. So they're not actually together. They do complement each other, but if you separate them, and do you have to separate them to map them in one of these sequences? Uh, at least at the point where they're being mapped, there would there has to be some sort of physical contact going right, on. Right, so you can't read them if the two the two sides of the chain are connected. You can't read it. You have to dis you have to break them apart. Basically, am I right? For the techniques I've seen, yes. Okay, but, and and you only need one side because if you have a long strand and you know of AAA. You know, the other side because is it's TTT, right? Right, so you only need one. So side. then, why is it four and not two? Why is it four? Let's say you have three three base pairs. Mm. If the only combinations possible are AT or CG, mm. isn't that two to the power of N? Or am I thinking about it wrong? Um, if you think about it, um, for, for the purposes of this thought experiment, you can think of the complementary strand as just. Right. Just don't think about it at all. Just chuck it to the side. I was just wondering where four came from rather than two. I was just having a quick think about it before we jumped on the podcast. Mm. And one thing that came to my head is, wow, this seems like a string of binary, right? If there are if there are only two permutations, it's the same as any sort of binary integer. You mm. would either have zero or one, and you're able to essentially, with a string of zeros and ones, you're able to represent anything that a computer can represent because they're just maps of zeros and ones to either... They're always integers. That's that's the only thing you can ever sure. map with binary is an integer. Right. But from an integer, you can then have a map from an integer to a letter in a, in a string of letters or something like that. Right. So I was just thinking with genetic material, it seemed like if there were only two options, that it would essentially be like binary. So if we had 500... 
500 base pairs in a row mm. and considering there's only two combinations it would be two to the power of 500 i was just wondering where four came from so imagine you're making a string of dna yourself mm-hmm. you're only doing one strand and whatever the complementary strand is it's decided by which base pairs pair to each other so you right. can forget about that for now so you start with a yep and for your next choice it's not one or zero you can choose a t g or c I see. Okay, so you can choose any one, and depending on which strand it appears on, that changes the base pair. So it's not only AT, it's TA as well. Right. Ah, okay. You can also say there's the coding strand and the non-coding strand, which breaks down when you get into more complicated biochemistry. But um, for the purposes of this, you can say that one one strand contains all the information and the other is protecting it but also serving as a template when you separate those two strands into two and they're not touching anymore two floating strands the machinery that um, duplicates that dna for one strand it creates by complementarity the second and on the second strand by complementarity the first so right. now i guess it's sort of like redundancy i don't know if you know about with hard drives and computers, you have these different ways to group them. RAID 0, RAID 1. It sounds like what it is is sort of like RAID 1 where you've you've essentially got a copy. You know what the first strand is if you only have the second and you know what the second strand is if you've only got the first. Yeah, I, right. d- I don't know what RAID is. Oh, okay, it's, it's if you have an array of hard drives, mm. you would have different strategies for where the data goes. So let's say with... This is getting super nerdy and technical, but... Yeah. With RAID 0, let's say you have two one-terabyte hard drives. When you add them together in RAID 0, if you have, let's say, a four bit, four bits of data that you want to store on RAID 0, what it's going to do is store bit 1 and 3 on hard drive 0 and 2 and 4 on hard drive 1. Okay. So the write speed is the same as a single hard drive because you have to, you're still writing to two single hard drives. There's no redundancy because you've stored different data on both mm. but you double your read speed okay because if you need to read all of those four bits you only need to read two from one hard drive and two from the other hard drive right so then there are other ones so read one is where you literally you just write everything to to both mm-hmm. so you would write the four bits to the first um and four bits to the second and i guess i've made a mistake in the first one because the write would also be faster in the first one because you're only writing two bits mm. whereas with raid 1 you write four bits to the first four bits to the second and you've got full redundancy so if one of those hard drives fails you haven't lost any data because you know exactly they're just a carbon copy right so it's different to genes in the sense that it's a complementary copy so it would sort of be like if with raid 1 the four bits they wrote the inverse of each one so if it was one 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 they mm. would write zero 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 on the other hard drive and you'd be able to determine but which one yeah so it sounds like what nature's doing is putting some redundancy in there yeah when that that kind of the complementarity um allows for replication but also you'll have multiple copies of the same gene this is both strands just consider that as one gene You'll have multiple copies of that throughout your genome as well. Okay. So That's getting real deep. Yeah, so you do have redundancy. You do have varying level of expression, depending on how many of those are on or off. 
But what you also have, talking about sequencing before, is copies. And if you have two genes exactly the same, you don't know which reads are coming from the first copy of the gene and which reads are coming from the second copy of the gene until you get really long uh, reads that show both in the same read. And then you can say, ah, there's two separated by this much. And that, that, that repeating is a source of so many bioinformatics bioinformatics headaches because the, 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 the genes that I'm talking about in that example are really long. There might be 1,000 to 10,000 base pairs long, but you will get 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80 for, for ages, just like heaps so when, of that. So when you we can't say, say how long that is because it cuts off at different times, right? So when when we're talking about mapping a genome, mm. are we mapping genes or just the base pairs? Because what it sounds like is that I've misunderstood what a gene actually is. I thought a gene was either that combination of a single base pair, whereas what it seems like is a gene is a combination of lots of different base pairs. Mm. So um, a gene would be the genetic code in DNA, AGCT, um, for some outcome. So okay. it's usually a protein. Right. So you're usually coding... So you're coding all your proteins in genes and there would be genetic material outside of that that may not be coding for proteins but is still doing some job and there's genetics information outside of that which uh, isn't coding for proteins isn't coding for uh, long non-coding RNAs or other more complicated fancy things, and it's just junk. Okay. There's that as well. So are all of those those three things that you've referred to, are they all considered to be a gene? So something, a, a unit of something mm. that codes for a protein we would consider a gene? For sure. A unit of... of Something mm. that codes for what did you say RNA? Long non-coding RNA. Yeah. Long non-coding RNA is that also a gene? Um, I'm not, not quite count? sure of the definition, but those long non-coding RNAs often have cellular function. Okay. And and if you're coding function in gene in genetic material, I would argue that that's a gene. Okay. I don't know where the community is at on that definition. And then the junk that would not be considered a gene. Yeah. So there's also a distinction between junk DNA and um, trash DNA or rubbish DNA where... where so say, junk and trash are different. In this set, Think about it like this. So in your house, you might have some junk that's not worth much, but you keep it around and you have trash, which isn't worth much and you, you don't keep it around. You, there's no need for it. So there's um, genetic material that's doesn't serve any function as far as we can tell. Maybe in the future, with our enlightened knowledge, we'll be like, of course, this, this, this makes short non-coding RNAs, whatever. So there's genes that, through evolution, even though we can't see a function, they're still maintained. So there might be some function there. Maybe they're just being maintained randomly. And then there's stuff that gets kicked out all the time. So there's stuff in your genome right now that... Uh, may serve no function 
as far as we can tell, but it will still be maintained throughout generations in the future, and the stuff that will disappear, and you'll be fine. And that's just... So yeah. this is interesting because I always wondered why mapping the genome could take so long. I remember hearing the amount of time, I think it was 10 plus years it took them to map the human genome. A lot of it makes, yeah. makes a lot of sense now because how do you even determine where a gene ends? So if we, if we, have, if we say a gene is an indeterminate mm. length of base pairs, mm. how on earth are you able to tell where one gene ends and another one starts? So what I'm trying to visualize here, if, I, if I'm going back to the computer analogy, mm. if we take a single chromosome and let's say it's 100,000 base pairs long, so that would be four to the 100,000 com- combinations, permutations in there. Yeah. Um, so when we're, when we're mapping it out, let's say we go from zero to 500, how do we know how many genes are in that? How is that even? How is it possible to know? Okay, gene number the first gene mm. in this organism's genetic material goes from chromosome one, base pair zero to base pair X. Right. How on earth do you determine that? Okay, so you've got some clues when you're looking at protein coding genes. Um, when a gene is being read and translated into a chain of amino acids, which is a protein, it's going to start always with um, an amino acid called methionine. And that in uh, the genetic code, that's going to be uh, ATG. So if those start codons is what they're called. If you, look, if you find that triplet, um, it's likely that that could be the start site of a protein that serves some function. But you can imagine the chances of ATG showing up are uh, 4 to the 3, right? Which is a large-ish number, 64, but over a whole uh, 10,000 long or however long genetic uh, stretch of genetic information that's going to pop up all the time. Of course. And it might pop up outside of that triplet frame. So you might get um, ATG, that's the star codon, and then you might get um, CAT, cat, yep. and then the next codon, the three triplet codon starts with a G. So you've got the start codon, then cat, and then something that starts with G. But in between that, if you're not setting the boundaries at um, ATG, CAT, and something starts with G, there's also... The possibility that you would identify that as a start codon when actually it's in the middle of a gene. Right, but the protein mach- the um, machinery that's reading your genes doesn't necessarily care where... So you can... There's three reading frames. So you can start with a... At that first ATG... Further down the track, there might be another ATG that you can start at that isn't one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, like in that first reading frame. But there's no, it's like relativity, there's no true reading frame. So you've got um, different start points that you can. Sounds interesting. This this is really a way deeper rabbit hole than I expected it yeah. to be. I really didn't think that it would be that complex. But now you have these services like. 
23andMe and I think there are some other ones that offer a similar service where they essentially say that they're going to transcribe your genes. How on earth are they able to do that for $99? So what they're doing isn't mapping your whole genome. Okay. They're not doing what the first human genome project did where they get the whole stretch of all your chromosomes. They're not doing what uh, research scientists will do when they're working with a like a model organism like E. coli or yeast, where they'll map all the genetic information. Um, what they're doing is um, looking at specific genes in your huge, huge, huge genome that we know are tied to things like eye color, hair color, height. Height's a bit more complicated. It's, compli- it's a combination of different genes, and then through that saying this ethnic group in this area has has a higher chance of having these genes this ethnic group in another area has a higher chance of having these genes you might have an increased rate uh, risk of heart disease if you have this variant of this one gene oh and, and it's not like you have the gene or you don't have the gene the eye color gene could have like small differences throughout it what I'm, what I'm trying to under that makes a lot of sense. It, it, it makes sense that what they're doing is not mapping your whole genome, but they're essentially just Too looking expensive. for yeah, looking for patterns within your particular genetic material that match something. So what I'm what I'm imagining is a certain number of different strategies that they might take. Mm. One being that they literally just feed all of your genetic material through through some machine apologies that was whatsapp i apologize mm-hmm. so they would feed your genetic material material through one of these machines and look for existing patterns so they might have a billion potential combinations of base pairs and they feed in your genetic material and just look if those those billion patterns exist in any one frame. Is that what they're doing? How how are they determining? Let's say, let's focus on eye color. Mm-hmm. Would they? Would this service be able to determine what your eye color is by passing your genetic material through it? And how would they? How would they know? There's a number of genes that code for your eye color, and I imagine they wouldn't be too hard to sequence um how do they know that let's say we've got 500 base pairs that we're looking at mm. is there a way for us to determine whether or not this is part of an eye color gene are there certain patterns that exist regardless of what eye color you have to say this is where the eye color gene starts mm. can we see that i don't think that's what they're doing okay i don't know exactly mm. what 23andme's method is but i imagine that a cheaper method would be using um, uh, complementary DNA arrays. So you just have like a, uh, a chip with a bunch of... Um, a chip? A computer chip? or Chip like a probably um, silicon base. I'm not actually sure what they're made of, but you can. they are small, about the size of a coin, roughly. Yep. And... Um, you are able to take uh, a DNA sample that's been prepped through chemical watsits and you put it on the chip and it uh, flows down channels and binds to 
uh, lengths of single-stranded uh, DNA that are floating like seaweed on the bottom of the ocean, right? And if uh, a bit of DNA flows by that's complementary to that and um, to a high enough degree, it'll hang on and stick around. A lot of the genes that you're not interested in and therefore you haven't put up seaweed feelers for can just float, float right on by. So I imagine that they're, again, I don't know, but it'd be much cheaper to ha- use um, these DNA arrays to pull out um, the genes that people are economically interested in and therefore it's economically sensible that they put those that makes genes a whole lot of sense. on the chips. And I guess what they would be doing with these array, the array of seaweed is to look for the common the common combinations and then the rest, so it'll bind to maybe 20% of the strand and then mm. the other 80% will actually be what's different about you versus me. And I don't know if 80% or 20%, that's total conjecture. I have yeah. no idea. But I'm guessing that's sort of what it would be like because otherwise if you had to have a complementary strand for for blue eyes, mm. would that would the obviously the gene for coding someone's blue eyes would not be the, the exact same in every single person, but maybe there would be the beginning would be the same and then the end would be slightly different. And if you had the beginning that you could bind to, let's say the one on the array mm. is ten long mm. And what you're binding to is 20 long, mm. the 10 bind to the 10, mm. and then you've got the extra bit that is unique to you potentially on there. Is that? Am I thinking about it correctly? I think you're thinking about it correctly. So okay. all, the, all these numbers are wild conjecture, of right. course. but um, Conceptually. Conceptually. But um, there would be enough complementarity in these arrays to catch the genes you're interested in. And then the differences would... Um, make the phenotype would make the the physical appearance of the gene so that could be as small as a single base pair changing to um a larger stretch being changed or or multiple stretches being changed have you ever used any of these services for yourself i haven't um what do you think about them so i think it's a uh interesting idea i think it's cool seeing um people being aware of how much their biochemistry can affect their life. I've, um, I've heard of um, people designing, uh, 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 doing genetic testing similar to 23andMe and then pulling out exercise regimes that are suited to your genetic code. And it, it um, I know there's one paper that describes that. I, I would wait until there's more. Until that point, it sounds like a book like Eat Right for Your Blood Type or something like that. Um, but uh, there's there's also some concerns people have about uh, once your genetic information is catalogued and attached to your name, insurance companies in the future, if laws change, would be able to use that information to say, oh, no, we won't insure you for heart attack because you're genetically predisposed and they can kind of do that through is, family history now. I was about to say, is that wrong? And also 23andMe isn't pulling out your whole genome. Right. They're not pulling out information about your everything to do with you. And again, your genome is the, the, the foundational level of biochemistry code that makes you. On top of that, there's transcriptomics, which are which genes are turned on when 
you have epigen epigenome studies that are looking at um, cytosine methylation and all kinds of little markers. This is something that I didn't plan to go into, but something like epigenetics, mm. if we could maybe just skim the surface of epigenetics. I've just always touched. been really interested in how what sort of mechanism would actually enact an epigenetic change. So from what I understand, if anyone's listening and doesn't know what epigenetics is, and you can tell me if I'm describing it correctly, epigenetics would be a you're not changing the genes that are in your cells, but you're changing how they are expressed or which ones of those are expressed. So within, obviously, genetics take a really long time to change if mm. you believe in evolution and speciation and that sort of thing. That would be genetic changes happening over thousands, millions generations. of generations. But epigenetics would be changes in expression of the genetic material that you've inherited from your parents and your ancestors within your lifetime. So, Is that correct? Yeah, so you can see... Um, your epigenetics can change for yourself within your lifetime. And if they're not happening in your sperm cells, your egg cells, the things that are being passed on to the next generation, they are happening to you. But there are examples of epigenetic changes that are being passed on to future generations. So they see um, children whose grandparents and great-grandparents went through periods of famine there's epigenetic changes in their genome that can be mapped back to their parents, which means that they have, um, they were stronger, they were more resilient. So, but that would mean that at some point, genetic material would have actually changed. And you, you said that it might be in the sex cells that it's happening, because it would seem unlikely to me that an epigenetic change would change all of the genetic material in every cell of your body. From what I understand of high school biology, every cell in your body, mm. apart from your sex cells, has all 23 chromosomes and they're all exactly the same. Is that right? Or am I? is that too elementary? No, essentially, that's a great way of thinking about it. If, like, say, your, your, your skin cells get hit by a bunch of sunlight, the UV light can make small changes in your in your dna but in the ideal case in the ideal case yes a, a cell in your eye a cell in your liver a cell in your skin in the ideal case without any cellular damage mm -hmm. they would all have the exact same genetic material in them essentially you also okay. have small copy um, errors that can take place when your cells are replicating when your dna is replicating but essentially your muscle cells, your eye cells, your brain cells, your colon cells, your um, all cells in your body all have the same blueprint. They all have the exact same big book of genetic information they can read through. Yeah. And choosing which chapters or which sentences to read at different times and choosing which ones not to read result in the changes that that differentiate a muscle cell from a nerve cell. And they do wildly different jobs but they all have the same root code that they're choosing which bits to listen to and which so then to. an epigenetic change using that as a premise mm. to me it would seem unlikely that an epigenetic change is changing the genetic material in every one of your existing cells that just doesn't make any sense to me mm. again i don't have knowledge in this particular area but 
how many trillions of cells are in your body, it, mm. would, it would not make sense to me that you were able to change the genetic material of all of those. But if you're able to pass on epigenetic changes, that would imply that you're able to change genetic material before it gets passed on to your offspring. So it would need to actually change the genome somewhere, not just the expression, because how do you pass on the expression of the same genome? So if my understanding of genetics is correct, I've got 23 halves of chromosomes from my mum, 23 halves of chromosomes from my dad, and they come together. If I'm to express an epigenetic change from my mum or my dad, it would mean that the the half of the chromosomes that they've passed to me would have actually had to have been different to w- what their cells actually have. Mm. So half of the 23 would need to be different from half of the 23 in their other cells. So you can think of epigenetic changes as just a constantly shifting see and there's some changes that are way more permanent than others the kind of genes turning on and turning off between a nerve cell and a muscle cell some of the some of the genes that are being expressed are shared and a lot of them um are permanently shut down so when we were talking about a chromosome before what that is is long 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 stretch of dna and to keep everything neat same way that if you had um, a bunch of wool lying in your house um, you you wouldn't just like chuck it in a in a basket so to when dna coils up into chromosomes it wraps itself around these balls called histones and then you have uh, something that looks like a long string of um, pearls where the dna comes along wraps itself around the histone roughly twice and then moves on wraps around again and so there's um genetic there's lengths of dna that are wrapped around these um histone proteins that are due to not being due to things that interact with your dna not really being able to um get a good hold of them they're just like bound to these other proteins they're kind of not available for and is that this comes back to probably my next question on epigenetics again this is a way deeper rabbit hole than i thought it would have been yeah there's a lot of but is that a mechanism for enacting an epigenetic epigenetic change what i'm trying to get at is mm. let's say let's assume that epigenetic changes or a subset of epigenetic changes that happen throughout your lifetime are based on stimuli that you encounter during your lifetime is yep. that right yeah so assuming that you encounter a particular stimuli a particular stimulus that would enact an epigenetic change, what would the workflow be from encountering that stimulus to expressing the epigenetic change? How would that flow from stimulus to epigenetic change? What are the mechanisms along the way? Do you know? So there would be um, the the two classic examples of epigenetics are cytosine methylation so out of those four base pairs a g c and t that c is cytosine and there's a um there's an area on cytosine where it's possible to put a little methyl group a little ch3 group on there and that doesn't change 
whether or not that C is read as a C or not when you're talking about the genome level. But for um, proteins that can recognize whether or not the, the C methylation has occurred, they can say, oh, this is methylated, it's turned off, we're not supposed to read this gene right now. So certain readers certain, will acknowledge it. Yeah. Not, so like um, the proteins that replicate your DNA don't care about that. They, uh, their job is to make, an exact copy. make a copy of the gene. Whether you've got proteins that are looking at which um, of genes to express and you might see a gene that's heavily methylated in, for cytosine and in different contexts that can mean it's turned off, don't use it, or it can mean we've got to use this gene right now. Methylation isn't always turned off. It's usually turned off, but there's no hard and fast rules, really. So the replicator of that DNA, would that copy the methylation as well? Um, or would it need to remethylate after it's been copied? So there are ways of carrying methylation on between um, replications, but it's not the actual protein that's doing the replication that does that so you can uh it's a it's a larger more complicated okay topic, but fair enough so that would be one ways to carry that would be on one mechanism for yeah. changing your genes so you've received a certain set mm-hmm. one way to change it would be cytosine the mm-hmm. c mm-hmm. methylating that group mm-hmm. what's another classic example of so a potential mechanism for changing genes back to those histones um having uh, all your all your genetic information tightly coiled around these histones, and then they tightly coil as well. It's just completely inaccessible. Um, and there's little tentacles flying off these histones. They're a ball with little tentacles coming off them. And on those tentacles, um, there's uh, amino acids, lysine mainly, that can be methylated, acetylated, all these different chem- chemical markers that indicate... Um, uh, turning on and turning off of genes. And what that means physically is when you're turning on a gene, the attraction between the histones lessens and they relax and they can f- flow further apart from each other. And um, where you're looking at a... Sort of like opening a book rather than closing a book, right? Or- yeah, or like from... Jeez, what's a good example? Um, if you have a bunch of beads on a string... Mm-hmm and someone's written something on the string, and you push all the beads together, you can't read it. But if you pull the beads apart and you get a long stretch where you can just read as much as you want on that string, then you can. You can. Read can. You can. Reading in that sense is the proteins that read DNA can have the space to touch the string, pull information out of it, where otherwise the beads covering it up, just you wouldn't ha- have that happening. So awesome examples. Mm. The big thing that's still unresolved in my mind is how either of those two examples of, I presume, many examples of ways that we can turn on and off genes within our lifetime, how do either of those two or any of the other ones happen in response to stimulus that the organism has had throughout its lifetime? So how, yeah, how would, let's, let's take cytosine methylation as an example. How would cytosine methylation happen in reaction to stimulus of that organism? So stimulus could be in the sense of you're a smoker and in tobacco smoke there's all kinds of fun and awful chemicals like acrolein. Look that one up. But that it's so nice. It just, it's just... I've never smoked a cigarette, but yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it'll definitely turn acrolein. on your pleasure senses. Yeah, okay. acrolein. It's tiny and it's brutal. It does a lot of damage. 
Um, uh, so there are some of those chemicals will be able to influence methylation patterns, and if it's going throughout your whole body, uh, if it hits your sperm cells, egg cells, creates changes there. Um, that'd be a kind of a direct method, but I also would imagine that. Again, I'm not certain in this area, but I would imagine that you could get a knock-on effect of changes where... um, The confusing part to me was how an epigenetic change propagates throughout the body or propagates to the cells that can be affected by it or can express the epigenetic change. How would that propagate to the point where your body knows that an epigenetic change has occurred. When I say your body, it doesn't really make sense. But where the, let's say, the majority of cells are aware that an epigenetic change has occurred, how how on earth does that propagate? I'm not sure. Maybe I'm digging. But it, it, this is, we'll we'll leave this one. We'll leave this rabbit hole. I'm really interested to find out more in this particular area because to me that was always the big gap. People mentioned the epigenetic change. Mm. And I, I can't, for the life of me, come up with an example of an epigenetic change that um, we could use as an example. But I have read about the epigenetic changes, you know, stimulus patterns that you exhibit throughout your life, actually changing the expression of your genes and changing your behavior can actually have an epigenetic change where the expression of your genes alters. It makes sense to me, logically, because humans in all life and I think humans in particular are designed to be adaptable. Right. So we have a brain that is, I, th- I don't know if it was you that said it, but with the most blank slate mentally out of all the organisms. Basically, we start life with such a blank slate. And the, the purpose of that is that there's so much variation within the culture of humans that the more stuff that was programmed statically the less adaptable we would be. But it also makes sense that genes have the same mechanism in the sense that even if it's not a human, there are certain changes to the environment that you would probably want to be able to adapt to within a generation Mm. because otherwise you would perish. Mm. So epigenetics, when I first heard it, made complete sense to me. Obviously, before I heard it, I didn't realize it was a thing. But you know how there are certain conceptual things that are given to you and immediately just make sense or make sense in that you believe them to be true you believe them to exist because it wouldn't make sense otherwise so epigenetics is one but the big question in my mind was okay if i understand correctly i have a trillion cells with the exact copy of my dna in the ideal case how is it that an epigenetic change propagates through all of those in response to a stimulus. So that that was the fundamental question, and maybe we can tackle it on another podcast, but that was another another rabbit hole that I didn't realize would be that deep. I thought that it would just be like, yeah, this is the this is the mechanism. Oh. There are two types of epigenetic changes possible, and these are the mechanisms exactly to get it done. I guess it's my lack of knowledge mm. made me think that it would be way simpler than it is. But let's move on to the next thing that I really wanted to even scratch the surface on, which is writing genetic material. So this is something that's come up or come into my radar fairly recently. And the image that sticks in my head, and I can't even remember where I read this article, but the image was this biohacker standing on stage and injecting himself with genetic material in order to change his body. The article was about people biohacking by changing their genes 
Right. And to me, I saved this question specifically for you. I specifically and purposefully stopped myself from researching this because I really wanted to discuss it. How can you change the genes of an organism? So that's a great question. So if you're looking at, um, I think I saw a story just passed through my sphere of this, of someone who injected themselves with um, something to change their genome, which is a bad idea. Just straight out. Don't do that. (laughs) Everyone listening, please. But um, if you find a syringe full of stuff to change your genetic material, be very careful with it. Right. Yeah. That stuff in this case was um, CRISPR-Cas9. I don't know if you've heard about CRISPR. This is perfect because I wasn't sure if it was. Mm. And I think a lot of people have heard the term CRISPR. Mm. And what was the Cas9 at the end of that? Cas9. So there's a bunch of different kinds of CRISPR proteins. And Cas9 is the leading so let's let's rewind mm. because I've heard of CRISPR and mm. I listened to the Sean Carroll podcast where they described what CRISPR was. Mm. It still it didn't stick right. because it wasn't very clear to me. Let's go right back. What what is CRISPR? Great question. So CRISPR is spelled C R I S P R. Okay, it's an yeah. acronym, I guess. It's an acronym. It stands for uh, clustered regularly interspaced. Um, CRISPR palindromic repeats. I think I've missed a letter. Interspaced could be the IS. Interspaced, maybe. But what it is, is a bacterial immune system against viruses. A bacterial immune system against viruses. Okay. That that we've co-opted to do our own different, to do our own things with. But originally, there, there is a war that has been fought in the in the world's oceans all the time and has been happening for uh, hundreds of thousands of years between bacteria and viruses. So what viruses will do is they'll um, latch onto bacteria that they've evolved to be specifically um, able to bind to and inject their gene- uh, genetic material into. Not all viruses can infect all bacteria. You've got some evolutionary specificity there. But a virus isn't really alive until it has a host. And even then, it's debatable. But So uh, they'll get the bacteria that they recognize, put the genetic material into the bacteria, and make use of the protein machinery that the bacteria has that reads genetic material makes proteins, and they'll hijack the whole system to just make more viruses. And so the bacteria is dumb, cute little thing, doesn't know what's going on. Um, And it just sees this viral DNA coming in, being like, yep, it's just DNA, looks like my DNA, I'm going to read it, I'm going to make lots of proteins, until it's so full of viruses that they uh, trigger a lysing event, an explosion, and well, where one virus came in and um, infiltrated the bacteria, thousands upon thousands will pop out and try and find their own. And bacteria. that's the same the same thing that will happen in our human cells as well, right? Similar. Okay, let's let's not go down that path. Yeah. So CRISPR being a defense mechanism of right. the bacteria. Okay. So some of these bacteria managed to survive. 
not all the bacteria are genetically identical and at some point some of them have worked out how to stay alive and if they do manage to stay alive they have crispr proteins in their proteome all the proteins that they express that take that viral dna look at it and store it in this library and what the library looks like is um a a bunch of repeats and then they'll store in the new viral DNA and then it's a bunch of repeats again and maybe DNA of another virus they saw back in their evolutionary history. So what you've got is repeats, 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 a virus DNA, repeats, 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 virus DNA. That's where the um, cluster, clustered, uh, regularly interspaced repeats part of CRISPR comes from. And so if the same virus comes along, same way we get immune to viruses that we've been exposed to, but a different method. Um, that uh, DNA gets injected into the bacteria and they look at it and compare it to their um, library of virus DNA that they've already have an idea of what it looks like. And they go, alarm bells, this is viral DNA, and they cut it. And once it's cut, it can't be read. And So they cut the one that was injected? They cut the DNA that's okay. been injected. So they have effectively stopped this virus from um, infiltrating it and taking it over. That bacteria has a selective advantage. It replicates. You get more and more until the virus is like, I can't, uh, I can't infect this bacterial population anymore. Their numbers go down until, uh, through random evolution, a virus comes out that makes a slightly different piece of DNA that can still do the job, and then they... It's this, this chemical war that's going on all the time. Yeah, as soon as CRISPR can't identify it, um, uh, they have to start again. But so how does CRISPR know that it's a vi- that it's viral DNA and not DNA that it should be copying regularly? So I'm I'm picturing CRISPR's position, and this may be wrong. I'm picturing CRISPR's position as something that is a barrier between the outside world and the, the nucleus of the cell where copying is going to happen. But I feel like that's wrong because I feel like what you described earlier is that what's happening, it's it's all inside the nucleus and that CRISPR would also be inside the nucleus. So rather than being a gatekeeper, it's something that is an intermediary between the step of, hey, copy this strand of DNA and then it goes through CRISPR before it's copied, mm. which is more accurate. So for bacteria, yep. they don't even have a nucleus. Their DNA is ah. floating in the cell. Yeah, pro- oh, okay. prokaryotes and eukaryotes. There's, um, so, so it can't be a gatekeeper, basically. So that, that option is off the table, in a sense? Well, it has to be a gatekeeper, but the boundary is the cell membrane. So, okay. Um, so what, what the um, CRISPR-Cas9 protein is in the bacteria is it's got a copy of... Um, it's got some what's called a guide RNA, which is a copy from the library of what the virus looks like, and it's just loaded into this protein that can take any. It's, it doesn't care what kind of RNA it has; it can just take in RNA. And so, while the protein cuts the DNA, the specificity of um, what it's looking for is derived from the gar- guide RNA that's incorporated into it, which has come out of the library. I guess the fundamental question is how, when when this new genetic material comes in, mm. how is CRISPR able to determine that this is 
bad bacteria, a bad string of DNA that mm. I should cut? How, right. how is it able to determine that? So it's looking at a length of about 20, 30 nucleotides long. And again, that's four to the 24 to the 30. That's a long stretch. So while there is mathematically a chance that um, it eventually would cut its own DNA, in practice, that's not what happens. Vir- the viral DNA is sufficiently different enough that the... But all the viral DNA has those 20, that exact 20? No. Okay. So, so you'd have lots of copies of different stretches of DNA uh, all shared with viruses. And if in the the theoretical event that the virus and the bacteria shares the DNA and the bacteria starts this autoimmune response where it's killing itself, it dies. Right. Doesn't get carried on. It's only the victors that are surviving here in this evolutionary. And does, does that CRISPR library get passed down as the bacteria yeah. replicates itself? Yeah, okay. it's, it's in its DNA. There's sections of its DNA that are dedicated as a library of watch out for these viruses. Damn, so its, it's genetic library is just constantly growing in response to viruses, basically. Right, it's an okay. arms race, yeah. And if it doesn't run into a virus for a, a long, long time, there's no, there's no um, pressure to keep that... Uh, in its library so just eventually it. if it gets rid of it it won't suffer a, a direct consequence for maybe some time many generations until that one virus that got beat down many many generations ago manages to make a comeback so there's um there's there's cool examples of where um actually that's getting sidetracked there. okay so then the next question for me is how are we utilizing this so we've got this bacterial defense mechanism against viruses mm. how have how have we co-opted this what we've co-opted about it what's so great about crispr is its specificity so the genetic tools that we've been using to alter dna have been before before this it was something called talons talons okay t a l e n yeah lowercase s um which I can't tell you what it stands for anymore. That's fine. It's almost become obsolete. Okay. And that was the old way of changing the genetic material of an organism? Yeah. So All organisms or just specific types, sizes? Any organism that has genes or okay. organisms. Yeah. So um, that worked on a similar idea that uh, there's proteins that recognize um, lengths of DNA. Um but the the way it did it was a little more complicated and it wasn't as accurate and it, it had its limitations but crispr has made it much easier to recognize it very accurately like if one of those um base pairs out of the 20 isn't quite right it's not necessarily going to make the cut okay so crispr is a mechanism that we've co-opted how how do we use that in isolation of the bacteria or are we actually using the bacteria as well? We've taken the the genetic code to make the CRISPR protein out of the bacteria. We don't necessarily need them. And then how the genetic material to make the CRISPR protein, mm. we put that where? Uh, depends on what you're doing for, uh, again. but So let's maybe let's focus on human human modification if we go back to this biohacker image in my head right you said that he would be injecting crispr cas9 mm. 
into his bloodstream, presumably. Yeah, armed with a guide RNA that he's chosen to attack a certain gene in his body and cut it. So this enters the bloodstream as a fluid of DNA? Are there cells in there? What What is he actually injecting? Free-floating proteins, especially of something of a bacterial origin, don't have a great chance of surviving your immune system. Right. So, like, for many reasons, it's not a good idea to inject this into your bloodstream. What you, where you see it is, um, say you're working with yeast, which doesn't have CRISPR. It's, um, it's just not in its arsenal of things it's mycelium, that yeast isn't it? can do. Uh, it's fungus. it's fungus. It's single cell fungus, the kind of fungus that make mycelia filamentous, but related. Um, so it's a common model organism. You would introduce gene uh, um, genes into the yeast that have that code for CRISPR-Cas9, the protein component. So you would inject that into the nucleus of one cell of yeast. No, genetic engineering isn't about injecting. It's about there's many methods of introducing genes into organisms. Which what, are, what would be the most common? Viruses? Uh, not even necessarily. So you can um, you can um, you can weaken cell membranes to the point that and introduce a high concentration of the gene you want to introduce that it can pass through the cell membrane of these very delicate cells, you have to be quite careful. It's called making protoplasts. And um, it will be random in- randomly incorporated into the genome of the... The cells in the pool. Yeah. Okay, so that yeah. would be one way. And then you have to screen and it's a whole thing. But if you magically say that through these lab techniques, you have a yeast cell that you've given the ability to produce... Um, CRISPR proteins. CRISPR proteins, and you've given it the genes needed to produce the guide RNA that fit into the CRISPR protein. You can then, you then have this um, thing floating around in the yeast that can um, bind to the genome of the yeast of the yeast and change it and change it. And that would, and from what you said about the bacteria, that would also then get passed on. To, well, I guess if the genes have been changed, it doesn't matter if the CRISPR protein is then passed on because what will happen is it will pass on the modified genome to whatever cells are come out come out of that cell when right. it's been replicated. Okay, but there's a high chance that that won't last many generations. There's something called a gene drive where you ensure you you a little more complicated, but you are ensuring that you pass on between the chromosomes that the, whichever gets passed on to the next generation there's a copy of uh the desired change there's a copy of the the crispr protein and there's a copy of the guide rna on both strands and if you're in a living organism where um only one of the strands has it it will produce the cas9 protein and create the stra- change in the other strand that's called a gene drive that's more scary, and it's a way to ensure that the changes you make in the genome gets passed on. More scary? Why is it more scary? More scary as in if you make a mistake or there's some unforeseen um, consequence of you changing one gene, there's, there's, there's papers showing that 
CRISPR isn't as accurate. It's, it's way, 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 way more specific and accurate than the previous techniques, but you still have off-target changes from CRISPR as well. So if you um, ensure passing on the changes that you've incorporated to future generations, um, there's all sorts of... Uh, ethics questions involved in that you've essentially created a new organism that didn't exist right yeah and uh it's it's harder to rep uh, to remove your mistake at that point it does kill all of those cells basically right you 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 have a hard hard time it's much hard it's much easier keeping it in a lab the rule is don't let anything genetically modified escape a lab wow but um it's like getting resident evil in my head resident evil just so any sort of zombies any zombie? yeah, any sort of zombie movie that's right how it starts it's basically oh my test tube broken now yeah I've let something out of the lab but even even organisms with gene drives it's 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 uh it's not as worrisome as when i first heard about them it's not as worrisome as it uh i was at the start it, it will last 20 25 generations as opposed to three okay which so, is a big increase, but when you're talking about bacteria that replicate themselves, like how many times in a week? It, it, it's as it's, a length it's of not time, it's not really that long. Yeah, interesting. So you sort of have a short-lived change that you're able to enact very specifically. So CRISPR is a mechanism for changing the genes of an organism. Yeah. What have we been able to do, and to what? It's really useful for research. Um, if you're using the native ability of the Cas9 protein, which is to cut. Um, if you just cut genes, there's a chance that when the cell tries to repair it, because you've got these two, you've cut a string and there's two free-floating ends, and there's things that will come in and repair that, they're not as accurate as the kind of, pro- the kind of protein machinery that replicates your DNA. They'll make mistakes more often. And if they make a mistake that turns off the gene, you've knocked out that gene. So if you're interested in what does this gene do, say you're working in plants and you just um, make a lot of changes and you grow up the seeds, um, because you know what gene you've knocked out, if it comes out white instead of green, you'd be like, huh, maybe this gene is involved in producing chlorophyll. And you do this on a large scale and you can knock out, you do knockout studies to see what kind of genes are involved in. So that's more of an elimination aspect of it. Right. So uh, this, and this comes back, so you've just mentioned plants. We're Mm. able to do it to plants. I presume pre-seed, what we would do is maybe try and change all of the cells of the seed to have this gene knocked out. Right. It's much, much easier to make a change to one cell and have it grow into an organism, whether that's, like Can a, you do that a with a seed? Cell a or plant? A seed? Yep. Okay. Then it is to have a whole organism and somehow deliver this gene modification to every cell in the human body. This comes back another to another reason from why this person injecting themselves is just like not a it's it's not going to work. So I heard about these people biohacking with genetic material, essentially being able to set up a lab in their home mm. that they're able to harness CRISPR in order to modify their genetics. And it seems like what you're saying is that 
that doesn't really work. What they're doing is they're just injecting genetic material willy-nilly, but there's no precedent for being able to change the genetic material of an organism the size of us if we're not starting from a single stem cell. So the delivery I, method is difficult. Okay. Yeah. So have you heard any specific examples of people injecting genetic material into themselves and seeing some sort of change visibly or measurably? No, I haven't heard anything about that. So I think re- that's still science fiction at the moment. Right. That's and that was that's a really good answer because I wasn't really sure I just heard of that, mm. and I think probably the journalist maybe had done their due diligence, but maybe done didn't. their job in yeah. the sense that they're making the story clickable. S- yeah, salacious in that sense that this is possible now, but actually it's not really. Someone's just done something that may or may not have any effect at all. It may just enter their bloodstream and immediately get, I guess excreted somehow yeah rather without making any changes because from what it from what it sounds like even on the reading side i presumed that on the reading side we had become very very accurate like we were able to take the genetic material of an organism and just very easily get a an exact map this gene is there this gene is there and for any particular organism we'd be able to map very exactly their genome but it seems like that's not the case it seems like we're still quite primitive like we we can maybe identify certain types of genes that are financially interesting mm. for us to identify, but most of it is it's sort of throwing shit at a wall in mm. a way. You're just hoping hoping that something sticks and it's not really that accurate. It's and then good. on the writing side, it seems that we're even... It's even not necessarily more primitive, but our ability to make specific changes that we want is pretty limited. Um, I definitely don't want to sell short the advances that we've made so far. We're doing very accurate and directed throwing of shits at walls. Okay. You mean in terms of reading? That was that was my reading example. It just yeah, seemed, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, and this this uh, to anyone listening that's in biotech, this is <laughs> as a diss. I'm. I'm amazed at all that we're able to do any of this stuff. It's it such just a seems... short time as well. Yeah. Yeah. 20 years since, was it 2001 or something that the human genome was mapped? I yeah. mean, 20 years to go from that to essentially having a service where you can pay $99 and see any of your genetics. Um, that is amazing. Mm. I guess the point that I was making was that what gets reported in the media about what we're capable of, it seems that the the author's lack of understanding of what's actually going on makes it seem perhaps that we're further than we actually are that we're able to even for a human just the idea of being able to inject something into a human and change their genetics that was implied by the article right to me i found that very interesting because i it seemed too short from the mapping of the human genome to us being able to do that but given the rate of progress in the 21st century already, I was like, well, maybe that's the case. So, yeah, not intended as a diss to any biotechnologists, mm-hmm. but if we if we go on what we're actually able to do, maybe that's a good segue into that. What are we actually capable of, of changing? Let's say organisms of what size, what can we do? Because it seems like GMO has been a term that's been around for a very long time mm. and obviously hybridization of plants and breeding of animals and things like that. Yeah, you're selective a, you're, breeding of plants as well. Yeah. You're changing genes. Yeah. You're just 
less you're less specific about what you're changing and you're you're leveraging the natural processes of mother nature looking at two organisms and trying to mix them together to get the positive traits of one or the other right and that's all phenotypic that's all what you can see like you don't know what's going underneath the hood so you could be yeah making tomatoes bigger and juicier and they last longer on the shelf but you have no idea what theoretically changed yeah so like yeah you when you have something really specific like CRISPR, even though it does have off-target effects you're 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 essentially changing one plus maybe some change um genes but when you're when you're crossbreeding when you're looking at the difference between um corn a thousand years ago and corn today it's just generations and generations of genetic changes at the huge changes right and that's that's not necessarily something to be concerned about as well i think people have this idea of you may have changed this gene but you also turned on the poison gene and now we're all poisoned but like because gene i don't want to sell that short because you should be cautious when you're messing around with this kind of thing but right especially i the guess hysteria out, is outside of what is possible with because plants produce would you call that sexually yeah yeah so plants also reproduce sexually you just gave ronan just gave me a wink everybody it's good podcast material <laughs> so plants yeah we're getting into plant porn now so plants reproduce sexually in the sense that you have two different genomes coming together yep. and selective breeding, uh, hybridization, that sort of thing would be you're essentially leveraging sexual reproduction in order to change genes of subsequent generations. GMO seems to have been a term that has been around for, I would say, the 90s, early 2000s was when that came into my radar as a term, Mm. right? And I presume that what GMO means in terms of fruits and vegetables that people have had the uproar about, that is not selective breeding, that is not hybridization, that is actually changing, changing genetics of a seed and then propagating that change is that right so they've been they've been uh in terms of plants and genetic modification since the 50s when everyone was mad about radiation they were bombarding uh seeds with x-rays causing random changes like brutal changes to all these um seeds planting them see what happens most died some of them came up with weird fun new things the first so that was just really inaccurate, I guess. Like You're the smashing most, something with a hammer. Yeah, like okay. the most, un, like, inaccurate way to uh, generate quick changes in an organism. Mm-hmm. Very bish bosh. What's going to happen? Kind of uh, genetic modification, and those would be genetically modified organisms. Okay, really. So that's really the first time we've we've tried to. Aside from agriculture, yeah. Okay. They're... Well, and I guess. That might have been the first example of us trying to change genes directly rather than leveraging sexual reproduction of organisms, right? Right. Okay. Right. And then how did that progress? So we went from, like you said, X-rays or I guess high energy uh, electromagnetic radiation Mm. in order to damage or change genetic material somehow. Mm. How did that progress and where did we get to when we started seeing the GMO vegetables and fruits 
in the supermarket? The first GMO vegetable was sold in the 80s. It was okay. called the Flavor Saver Tomato. Mm. And it had a higher shelf life, uh, generally considered by tomato aficionados of the time to be <laughs> fairly flavorless. But when you're running a supermarket, especially a large conglomerate running many, many supermarkets, you're more concerned um, with the shelf life and the food wastage than you are with the intricacies of the flavor of your heirloom tomatoes. Who, I, I who made to, that? Was uh, it Monsanto? I don't know. You don't know who made that? And I don't know the, the method by which they made the change. What's your best guess? Um, probably a combination of the X-ray generation and selective breeding. Really? Well, they didn't have many that's techniques what, at that point. In t- they didn't have amazing. CRISPR, they didn't have talons. They could make genetic changes, but... When did talons come about? Again, I don't know okay. exactly, yeah. Wow, so that that first GMO organism was still the result of essentially the technology that we've had from the 50s. They just It seems like they were just able to use it for long enough in order to generate a change that is, uh, how do we put it, um, advantageous in some sense. Right. Okay. And, so, I, and I don't want to make the... the, the, the plants that came out of the x-ray bombardment weren't themselves radioactive and you could have by chance made changes that make the food more healthy you would have made heaps of changes that do nothing or cause it to die or never be able to cause it to die doesn't go on there could have been some mutations which we call deleterious which aren't fatal but they're not good for the organism but again, people aren't really concerned about the organism. They hear, hear that they're concerned about when I eat this. Right. Is it poisoning me somehow? Have there been examples? Because it seems like there was a big uproar about it. And it seems that the biggest, the biggest disagreement with it was the fact that people were saying, you don't really know what you've changed. And mm. if in the 80s that was the result of selective breeding plus this X-ray bombardment. I'm guessing. Okay, um, you're guessing. It it would make sense to me that maybe there should be some caution in selling this to a large population of people because it seems that we don't really know exactly what was changed or why the shelf life was improved. But I think that would maybe be easier to measure in the sense that we probably have some idea of the mechanism of this plant rotting why what is the difference between a plant that has a long shelf life and a plant that has a shorter shelf life that seems to me that would be easier to measure because that would be a phenotypical measurement if i understand correctly it would be something like this one has certain chemicals in the skin that prevent bacteria or molds from growing and forming or entering it right so that, yeah. No, it's a great, it's a great okay. point. There's, there's enzymes that you can knock out. There's enzymes that you can introduce that will make a measurable change on the shelf life of a fruit or vegetable. There's um, attempts to... Um, so people who are allergic to peanuts, it's not the whole peanut that they're allergic to. There's proteins in the peanut that are causing that allergic reaction. So if you can make a peanut that's still a peanut but it doesn't produce that... 
um, allergenic protein, you can produce a peanut that people with peanut allergies can't eat. Fascinating. You can um, take... Was it? You would take. You can take a gene from an Antarctic fish that helps with like an antifreeze property, and put it into. I want to say it was lettuce or another vegetable, and what it means is you can freeze it without just and putting it in cold temperatures die. for transport purposes and maintaining freshness without it. Um, without ice crystals forming and you break cell walls and you end up with a, a floppy vegetable at the end of the day that's going to go bad in the bottom of your fridge. Would you feel cautious about eating something? Would you feel cautious about eating a lettuce that had that Arctic fish gene in it? Well, would I feel um, cautious about eating the Arctic fish? Good point. And Good point. It's not when you eat the fish, you're not just eating that one protein you're eating that and the thousands upon thousands of other proteins and none of them when i'm eating that fish i'm not thinking i'm not going through a checklist of these thousand proteins being like i'm concerned about this one i'm not concerned about this one this is an interesting way of looking at it that i don't think has been brought up by anyone that i've heard before in Mm. that yes you've introduced a protein into this particular fruit or vegetable or something else Mm. that didn't exist in it and people be like well this is this is terrible. You've introduced a protein that doesn't exist, but you would you would probably eat the thing that the protein came from. Right. But is is it plausible to say that introducing that protein into a an organism that didn't produce it would have some follow-on changes that may produce something that is deleterious to us as an organism? Sure. Um I think the first question would be is it deleterious to the the like the vegetable that you've introduced this protein into first first and foremost so that uh that would be doing interaction studies with the protein and just like a a homogenous of the plant see if anything binds or sticks and whether that means anything because things bind and stick all the time doesn't necessarily have a downstream effect if you can look at the metabolome which is at any point in time all the small molecules and metabolites produced by an organism, um, which is really fluid. So while your genome remains constant through your life, your epigenome can change throughout your life and can be passed on. Your proteome, all the proteins in your body, change fairly frequently. Your metabolome is different throughout the day. You're, You're producing melatonin at night to help you sleep. You're producing cortisol in the morning to help wake you up all these kind of small changes that's the most fluid one and it's often a good place to look for um poisons poisons and um consistent changes because it's changing all the time if you introduce this new protein you see a huge spike in this one chemical constantly and that's a bad chemical you can start um, so they would maybe alarm bells then, but it's just such a long chain of maybes. In I guess in something related to this, I guess what they would do is a diff between the original organism that we consider safe and the one that they have modified the genetic material of. So that's there's a term software engineers will know. Um, basically, when you change a file with software version control, 
a diff will tell you exactly what has changed in that file. So okay. what you'll tend to see is you see lines that are red that have been deleted and lines that are green that have been added. And mm. you can go from one instance of a file to another instance of a file. All it is is a diff or a combination of different diffs. So if there were two diffs in between, you know, the first diff, maybe you've deleted, you've changed line one and you can model every change as a deletion and an addition. If you have two of those, let's say let's say you've gone from file file one to file two with two changes in between. File one and file two are actually the same. The first change, you've changed the first line from A to B. Mm-hmm. It's just one character on the line. You've changed it from A to B. And then the next one, you've changed it from B to A. Right. You've got delete A, add B. And then in the next one, delete B, add A. Yeah. So I'm guessing what they do when there's a, a genetically modified organism is to look at that metabolome and say well, at these points in time, these are the, I guess, distinct points of the metabolome in the original organism. So let's say in the morning it, it has a metabolome that is roughly this. In the afternoon it has a metabolome that is roughly this. In the evening it has a metabolome that is roughly this because you said it changes throughout the day. Mm. And you would say this is the prototypical metabolome of this healthy organism at these times of the day. So what I'm guessing they do is when they produce the genetically modified organism is they would take the samples of the metabolome of that new organism at those different times and essentially do a diff between the original and the genetically modified one and say, well, okay, this one particular metabolite does not exist anymore in the new one, Hmm. but there are these three new metabolites that exist in the new one. What are they? What sort of concentrations are they in? Are they harmful to humans? That sort of thing. Am I am I right? And that's probably part of the process. Right. I think that would be a part of the process. Makes sense, right? Metalom- metabolomic studies are more recent in the scheme of things, so that not wouldn't necessarily be have done be done in the past. Okay. For but um, if I wanted to be sure, if I was producing a, a genetically modified organism and I wanted to put um stakeholders uh at ease at ease a metabolomic uh, study risk 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 assessment risk reduction i would conduct a metabolomic study so let's tie this together Mm. the whole podcast not the whole podcast but let's go with CRISPR specifically so we've looked back at potentially how we would have created a genetically modified organism in the 50s 80s that sort of thing Mm. now that we have CRISPR Let's say we wanted to produce a tomato that was twice as big. Right. Using CRISPR, what would be the way... Would that be something that we could potentially do? And how would we approach it with CRISPR specifically? So CRISPR... um, Yes, it could be something we could do. Um, CRISPR itself is just a tool. And we've only spoken today so far about CRISPR being used to cut and knock out genes. But you, you can also introduce genes if uh, you make a cut and then you also have the gene you want to add present when that repair mechanism happens. If it just happens to, if your gene happens to be introduced, you can screen for that. Only take the ones where it's happened to survive and you move on. So you can essentially write and add. Mm. Okay. So you can, I guess, delete, change, add that's all possible with CRISPR yep okay in terms of writing you can type out on your keyboard go to go to a website type out on a keyboard AC what any combination of nucleotides you want send that to a company 
and they can synthesize that chain for you when we're talking about writing. It's more expensive than if you're working with a model organism. Making a change yourself is much less expensive than writing out the whole code again plus your change, right? And so the, all those lab techniques still have a place. But if you want to just make a completely synthetic um, stretch of DNA, that's possible now when you're talking about writing. So you could just remove the... Exi- so that would be another mechanism would be to completely remove the genetic material of an organism and replace it with the one that you synthesized? You'd have a lot of problems, <laughs> okay. but it's a possibility. So, I mean, essentially what the gist of what you're saying is we can almost make any change to the genetic material of an organism that we want now. Yeah. But so let's say let's say we wanted to go with this tomato, we would I guess start by making the change in a single cell and then growing that cell into a, into a tomato and then trying to propagate the one that was grown from the single cell. Am I right about that process? It'd be much easier. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, start with a single cell, use CRISPR or some other technique based around CRISPR to delete modify or add genetic material to it take that single cell grow it into the organism Mm. as coded by the genetic material in that cell Mm. and then take the seeds from that and then propagate it and see if it grows is that the general process that's the general process and the 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 your guiding uh, idea of what you're deleting what you're modifying what you're adding what you're duplicating um is all based in your understanding of what each of the genes in there do already. Another use for like the map of the genome that you have. So if you've worked out through knockout studies or you've worked out by reading the genome, sequencing the whole genome of a, a new plant and being like, huh, that gene looks a whole lot like the growth hormone gene of a related plant, you can fairly confidently say that's probably it. And if you duplicate it or you somehow upregulate its expression by modifying areas either side of the gene um, you have a chance of creating um, a tomato say with twice the size twice the size ah so that's how you tie together the reading and the writing basically so use the reading to determine basically approximately what you'd like to change or at least what you'd like to test Mm. the change hypothesis about okay we we know or we have through induction determined that this gene regulates the amount of growth hormone for this particular plant we see in this other this other plant that we see a stretch that looks like a gene that could be similar Mm. let's target that the hypothesis being that if we upregulate this particular gene then the growth hormone for this plant will be increased and we'll get something of the same size. So you need to be able to at least have some idea of not only what you want to change, but the effect that it would potentially have. And right. then you would use the writing techniques in order to uh, make that change and see what happens basically, right? Right. And the whole process has checks and balances it throughout the whole way. You'd be deciding um, whether to just duplicate the um, growth hormone gene or introduce one from another organism that you've seen work better. Just like imagine all the possibilities, all the decision trees that you have in Different this process. Different playbooks essentially for making the, the change that you want to make. Right. So you have a target 
and you have lots of different paths potentially to get there. Some that may be dead ends, mm. others that may have some effect that you didn't predict or something like that. And you're testing and reevaluating the whole way. That decision tree is guided and it's complicated and it's based on combined centuries of research. And when you compare that to X-ray bombardment and you just get changes, it's just... It's worlds it's apart. Such a, it it's, sounds it's like worlds, worlds apart. apart. It's, it's, it's so different. It's trying to fix... It's trying to, like... Uh, it's trying to fix a watch with a hammer as opposed to tiny, tiny little tools and a book that tells watches. you how watches work. Right. <laughs> that's, a really, that's a really great summary, and I think that ties the podcast together really well. I think the last thing and the thing that I want to finish on is what, what are the, the big areas... I'm not going to say big areas of research, but what are the changes that has a lot of money behind it? So obviously growing a tomato twice, twice the size was my example, but what would be the top examples in the world of what the biotechnology labs around the world are trying to change? What specific changes are we trying to use these techniques to create? Right, so good example of trying to make biotech more competitive in the sen- economically competitive in the sense that it can compete with oil and gas and agriculture comes with this year's um, a Nobel Prize winner in chemistry. So um, you're looking at uh, the directed evolution of enzymes and proteins. So you can um, make small changes to them and put them through assays where, say, say, say you've got an enzyme that turns um, a chemical from clear to purple right and you make a whole bunch of different changes to it all over the place changes to the enzyme to the to the enzyme yep yep you're changing the genetic code and therefore the protein the shape of it the size essentially it's catalytic enzyme function right and you're seeing whether the changes you make um can make more purple compound or less and because it's simple like that whether you have you do it in these trays that are like 96 wells, make a bunch of changes. You know which changes happen in each well. Which one's more purple? Pick that one. Make more changes. And Keep I'm, going. I'm going to pick up on that because of it, like a catalyst is just a chemical. It's not a biological organism, right? So I guess what you're saying no. is... Were you, no? No. A, ca- oh, okay. a catalyst is something that speeds up a chemical reaction, but it remains unchanged itself. So it doesn't necessarily have to be a chemical. It can be anything. No, it's platinum in your exhaust pipe, but in your body, it's all proteins. So, but when you say we're using genetic engineering mm. or we're using these genetic techniques, mm. what are we changing? Are we ch- We're changing an organism that produces the protein though, right? We're not changing... The organism itself is not the catalyst. It's something the organism produces. Am I right? In, in this case, you're looking at something the organism's producing, which okay. is a protein... It's a enzyme, and an enzyme is a protein catalyst so for, what, for some reaction. What we're trying to do is modify the organism, I guess, for not not the amount that it produces, but the specific enzyme that it produces. So we're you're not even looking at organisms at all. You're just looking at the enzyme. Ah, so you're okay. just trying to you're just trying to ah, optimize. So we're using genetic genetic material to actually just make the proteins so Mm. we're not even talking about the organism we're Mm. talking about the genetic material and the genetic uh how do i put it the genetic machinery 
So you're still going to use the organism to take the changes you've made and produce the new modified enzyme. Okay. But, so but the, you're, you're not concerned with the, the organism. All right. you're concerned with is that. What it produces. Yeah. Okay, so I was correct in that. I'll rewind on there. So what you're, what you're looking at, let's say we have a bacteria that produces some, some chemical, some enzyme. It mm. produces an enzyme as part of the, the things that it does, and mm. you're focused particularly on that. You would modify genes that change that enzyme that it produces somehow. You, so, you change that the gene for the enzyme. Yeah, yeah you change the gene for the enzyme. Mm. So in the subsequent generations of that organism, it would produce an enzyme that is slightly different. Yeah. And so what was the Nobel Prize? It was, it was looking at um, directing the evolution of enzymes to uh, make them much more efficient. And once you have enzymes that are so efficient that they can compete, compete with um, chemical processing for producing organisms. Enzymes can also produce um, uh, specific chemicals that chemical processes can't because they're limited by temperature and pressure and what you add into it, timing, catalyst. But you, you, uh, if you imagine an enzyme as, a, as a, a very tiny pair of hands that grabs one substrate and another and puts them close together so that it's very, very likely that they will react. They're a catalyst in bringing, bringing friends together. So basically a big application of these genetic tools are to essentially design enzymes. Yeah. And, Enzymatic design, I guess. I yeah, guess. And, and not only improve the ones that we have already, which is you're adding that to your book of what you can change in other organisms. You don't just add any old um, amylase which is an enzyme, you add the very best one. Yeah. So you Amylase plus plus. Yeah, amylase plus plus. And that, that you've discovered by generation and generation and generation of optimization. Optimizing the, the protein. Yeah. So we're using we're using organisms as little factories for better and better enzymes that we want to make. Cells as factories uh, is one of the things that so that's, really excites me. Yeah. Is is that would you say that that's the top thing now that biotechnologists are focusing on? Because it seems like that one is very applicable to industry and hence there would be a lot of money behind it. Cells as factories is such a broad platform that you could be making biologic drugs, you could be making fine chemicals, or you could be making um, flavor compounds, fragrances, just any, anything really. And so it seems it, like we're getting further and further away. Well, not further and further, but it seems like maybe the focus now is smaller and smaller rather than let's say genetically engineering a, a tomato with longer shelf life it mm. seems like the money is maybe not in agriculture so much as it is in producing drugs directly or making enzymes there's still money in those areas for sure what what's um up until this point the the, the speeds and the money it would take to produce through biotechnological methods what you can get out of established industrial methods it just doesn't compare so there's not a push behind it but when but it's more versatile you can get more different things you can get more delicate things that would just get broken in industrial processes and so the, the scope of what you can produce is wider but the speed at which you can do it is slower and the amount of money that it takes is slower but what we're seeing is the amount of money it takes to 
sequence of genome is drastically falling. The, um, through enzyme optimi- optimization, um, the speed at which you can produce these things is, fall- is increasing. And you're not only limited to finding enzymes that uh, already exist and optimize them. Say you want to break down PET plastic. With they, they found bacteria recently that uh, were, breaking, were breaking down PET, something that was previously not known to happen. And so once you have a little bit of activity, that's all you need. You can just optimize that process. Totally fascinating. Yeah. Well, let's end there, man. That was really, really interesting. Mind blown on many, many levels. I don't even know how long we've been going for, but it feels like quite a while. It's coming up to 12. That was awesome, man. Thanks for coming on. No problem. Well, that's the end of episode four with Ronan. How was that? Do you know about genes now? I certainly feel like I deserve a piece of paper after that. I really enjoyed that conversation with Ronan, and I hope you did too. If you'd like to find out more about Ronan, read his writing, or follow him on social media, I've included all the links in the show notes for this episode. As always, if you have any feedback about the podcast or just want to get in touch with me, I'm available at Percy at percygrunwald.com or as at Percy Grunwald on Twitter and other socials. Thanks a lot for listening, and I'll speak at you next time. Go to bed. <laughs>